I am Captain Matthew Gillespie of the Philadelphia Police Department's 18th District, and this is Aftermath Philadelphia. In this podcast, we host critical conversations with those involved in reducing the epidemic of gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. This podcast features candid episodes that highlight different thoughts and perspectives while offering strategies to lower this violence. In the final episode of Season 1, I sit down with retired NYPD Sergeant turned college professor Joseph L. Jackalone. We discuss his experiences in investigations while with the NYPD, the NYPD anti-crime teams, the New York City Bail Reform Act, and rising gun violence in Philadelphia and New York City. The thoughts and ideas in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and ideas of the Philadelphia Police Department or the city of Philadelphia. All right, everyone. Welcome back. This is Aftermath Philadelphia. I'm 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 laughing, and in a little bit of a, a humorous mood today because I have uh, Joe Jackalone, uh, retired NYPD sergeant. We had a good conversation before this started. Uh, Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And um, like I said, I mean, you retired after 20 years. I, I looked into. You know your background a little bit because that's what cops do, right? We like check check each other out. Um, we have some similarities. You know, most of your career was dedicated to conducting and being involved in criminal investigations. CO of Bronx Cold Case Squad, CO to Crime Stoppers Unit, Executive Officer Detective Bureau Training Unit, um, Director of the NYPD Homicide School, which I would love to talk about, Executive yeah. Officer of the 110th Precinct. We call them districts here in Philly. Um, and currently you're an adjunct professor at John Jay College. So, um, you know, you you definitely did not have a uh, easy road. You were pretty busy, I would say, in your 20 years in NYPD. Yeah, pretty busy. You know, I, I got on the job in 1992, which was two years right before the big high watermark on homicides, and I was assigned to the Bronx. So I spent almost uh, more than half of my career in the Bronx. So I had a lot of experience with crime and criminals and yeah. violence and, and everything. You know. Philadelphia, you know, this is my 19th year. Um, we're at an all-time high, year-to-date, and it's something that New York has seen as well. Year-to-date, Philly has 524 homicides, which is a 13% increase from last year, where we had 499. Um, you probably experienced some of this up in New York, the crack epidemic um, in 1990. I think Philadelphia is when we had the last time we had 500, so it, it really is out of control. Um, you know, non-fatals, we're at 1,800 now. And I know New York is struggling too. Like, what do you? I'm just. What do you see? 
I don't think it's one thing, but like, what do you see as a main issue? Um, let's use Philadelphia and New York as some of these problems. Like I said, there's a confluence of things. We have a new district attorney coming into Manhattan who's already given out a laundry list of case of, of crimes. He's not even going to even, don't even bring me. Yeah. So that's the kind of, uh, you know, thinking that's been going on. But I mean, New York, we've had bail reform, prison reform, parole reform, raise the age, which raised the age of how you can charge a juvenile mm -hmm. into an adult. So, I mean, all of those things matter. And yeah. you, you have a, you know, and right now you have a pretty apathetic police department, I think. Up in you know, probably in, yeah. in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 18th, and this is all out there. It's nothing, I'm not like letting out secrets. The 18th district um, is West Philadelphia, and hopefully you come down and visit sometime, but it's it's the West Philadelphia section, a lot of poverty. Um, ironically, like 30 blocks to the east is University of Pennsylvania, so it's that big dichotomy. We've had two major riots in the last year out here. Um, I've also had 25 officers resign. So in Philadelphia, you know, I got a, a district of 180. When you got 25 leave, that's a that that you know yeah. that can hurt. That definitely can hurt. Um, in terms of the gun cases, you know, we have a bail issue down here. You know, all the different parties are. We should have higher bail. We should have no bail. We should have let everybody out. Like we can't get it together. To be quite honest, I always hear. You know, I read whether it's you know newspaper articles on social media the Bail Reform Act up in New York. What what is that? Like, can you explain that a little bit to us? Well, yeah, the Bell Reform Act, I mean, when people like myself even refer to it, it encompasses a lot of things. So it has to do with non-bailable offenses, which includes, you know, criminal possession of a firearm, firearm, believe it or not, right? So if you're having a gun problem, you're not giving bail to people who are caught with guns, that, that, that should be a red flag. Yeah. But we also have discovery changes. So they made it very onerous. They tried to hand over information to the defense, like within a real short period of time, where it used to be a lot longer. So now I think they have to get it done within two weeks or so. Okay. So, I mean, that, that affects cases. We have uh, the, the inability for judges to actually take into account people's bad past criminal behavior. Really? When, when they do. Really? Yeah, we're... This, this is something that people have been stomping up and down on to try to change. Because it's like states like New Jersey and everybody else, they yeah. have similar bail reform laws and, and things like that, but they have judicial discretion. So, you don't have that. So, like in Philadelphia, if you get caught with a gun... And I will. I am going to give the district attorney's office credit for this. You get you get caught with a gun. We we do do a lot of extra work. I will say that, but there are specific circumstances where even the captain goes down and testifies at these bail hearings or bail revocations and can say to the judge, "Listen, this person has been involved in X, Y, and Z. This is what their social media is putting out there. I know them to be a problem." And the, some judges. Take that into consideration. In New York, they don't have that. You can't do that. They don't have the ability to do so. Wow. They wow. don't have the ability to do so. So yeah, that's something that has everybody has been you know harping on to try to get changed. Uh, you know, the politicians that are you know responsible for all this, they'll say no, things haven't changed and this and that, but they have greatly changed. You know, like th that pisses me off. That kind of stuff. I he I hear that. You know, but then like I'm the one, and you were the one. Is when you were on the job. Like you go to the community meetings, you sit in the squad room, or when you're interviewing the victim, and people are telling you, like, yo, the mood on the street is people are scared. You know, that's the feel. People are scared. People are worried. Um, I don't well, care what the statistics are saying necessarily. Matt, think about this for a second. In the New York bail reform. The suspect has a right to go to the crime scene. 
So let's say it was a sexual assault. They guy can go back into the house and conduct their own investigation. I mean, this is how crazy things have gotten. Wait, wait. I'm Honestly, gonna, can you say that again one more time for the listeners? Sure. The defense attorney can and, and the suspect themselves can go back to the crime scene and do like their own investigation. Wow. And so you heard me right. You heard me right. So could you imagine being the victim of a sexual assault or a, or, or a family member is shot and killed or something like that? Now you have to invite these people back into your house. Wow. It's, wow. it's absolutely nuts. But you know what? People will then label you as a fear monger and all you're doing is saying stuff that you know, is against the, the narrative, against the status quo. But you know what? If that's, if that's what fear mongering is, then so what? That's the way I look at it. Looking at my notes here because I have to like double check it every day. With the We call it VUFAs. You get caught with a gun illegally, it's a VUFA. Violation, the Uniform Firearm Act. Um, in 20... Let's see here. 2019 and 2020, the 18th district, my district, has made about 343 illegal firearms arrests. And how many people do you think have gone to state prison? Three. Three. Yeah, there you go. So it's it's so like right? it's Basically. less. It's actually it's actually less yeah. than one percent. Yeah. Um, so when you hit people with that in these meetings about well, mass incarceration, this is what's actually going on. Then I get dead silence. You know what I mean? Uh, or, you know, I, I always bring up the anecdotal evidence when you have somebody who's been arrested 55 times and said, yes, the criminal justice system is very bad. You know, it's really it's really uh, doing doing a job on some people. Hey, listen, it, sometimes you just can't uh, get through to people. They have their, you know, their view and their point, and they will refuse to look at any evidence, even if it's anecdotal. Yeah. They won't look at it. You know, we do do a lot here in Philly. I don't always agree with it. But I do support the overall, like, you know, if you get caught with a gun, I, I, this is me personally. I'm not, this isn't the city or the police department saying. I kind of see three groups right now. There's, like, younger kids carrying guns because it's cool. They're just doing it because it's cool. There's other kids doing it because, and people doing it because they're getting bullied. They're afraid they're going to get shot, so they carry it. I don't condone it, but I understand it. And then there's just really the ones that want to carry guns because they want to shoot people, you know? And they need to be off the street. It's not a debate. It's not an argument. Um, You kind of transition to my next point is, like, you were there during that time. How did New York go from, you know, being really, really violent with a lot of crime to the safest city, at least in America, if not probably in the world? Well, we, we went from mandatory, you know, first started off with a year in prison with an illegal firearm to they then jumped it up to three years in prison with an illegal firearm to no bail. That's how, so that, that's the progression that it has had over the last 30 years. So it was about targeting those who carry guns, the shooters themselves, mm-hmm. finding them, extracting them out of society. And guess what? Not only do they prevent, you know, that, that whole incarceration bit incapacitated them, but it then also stops retaliation shootings. So it's a vicious cycle. So if you can get this person off the street quickly, exactly. arrest them, get them out of the way, there's less likely that someone can retaliate. Exactly. I mean, it, it really is. Um, you got to prosecute guys carrying guns, don't you think? Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's about deterrence, right? So if there's no deterrence or there's no fear of punishment or there's no fear of the police stopping you, uh, then, you know, you're going to have people carrying guns for those reasons that you said before, you know, out of the fear because they think it's cool or because they actually want to be criminals and they and go around shooting people. So without that deterrent, you're running, a, you're running the risk of here you are, record high homicide numbers. Yeah. 
We have here in Philly, um, we call them the tactical officers. They're, uh, you know, some of the officers that are a little more experienced. They work a specific schedule. They go to these really uh, hotspot areas. They get all the the up-to-date intelligence. They're the ones really, for the most part, making most of the VUFA arrests. I know in New York you had that, was it the anti-crime Anti-crime unit, yeah. Okay. They, they, they did away with that. So New York City's been running blind on the intel since since last June. Yeah, I mean, so. like, just talk a little bit about like, what they were, how important they were, if you thought. And, and I think, if I'm reading this right, the, the new mayor-elect is going to bring them back? Well, the new mayor-elect said he is going to bring them back. Right, so, I mean, they did away with the anti-crime unit, which, the you know, the... The criminals used to call them the gun police, right? Okay. So that, that so this, just to give you an idea, what they used to be referred to as, and their sole job was to gather the intel, who was carrying guns, what beefs that were having in the streets, what was the chances of retaliation, mm. and all these things that would come to play, and then they would go out and try to make collars. So they worked in plain clothes, and they um, they were very effective. And it, what I'm shocked about is that even. Without them, New York City's making record gun seizures and these things. But you lost the intel. That's That was the big thing, right? So you lost a lot of that intel. And if you look at when the, when they were disbanded back in June last year, mm. to, I mean, the, the shootings and everything just went off the charts after that. Because, once again, no deterrence. They weren't worried about being, the criminals weren't worried about being stopped by the, by the anti-crime police. And that, that's a big thing. You know, I, I do see on the media, like, just, I don't have this on my on my list here, but it popped in my head. Like, I see, you know, you see some media talk about people in New York don't want them there. Uh, anti-crime was stopping too many people. They weren't doing it the right way. Like, as somebody that's on the ground, right? Um, and I know you're not speaking for everybody in the community, but, like, what, what was the sense? Do community members want the, that unit there in... I'm not talking lower Manhattan or the west side, but like, you know, the Bronx area that's really struggling with gun violence. What do you right, think? The Bronx and Brooklyn, yeah. If you spoke to the people back in 1990s and you spoke, you speak to the same group of people today, they'll tell you that we want the police presence there. We yeah. want the anti-crime units. Yeah. It's the people who've been transplanted here who didn't, who didn't know how bad things were in the 1990s. I refer to them as urban pioneers, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they're coming in and, and they're just pioneering the urban mm-hmm. front, right? Because they've never experienced this before and they come with a whole set of ideas, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But the issue that comes down to is we have people that are making decisions for a majority of people that their decisions won't affect them. So they live in a nice, wealthy area of, let's say, Philly or New York City. They're not going to. They don't have the the, the people passed out in front of their doorsteps or the gunshots going off and all. They don't. So they're making decisions for people who have to deal with this on a day to day basis. And until. People understand that part of it. You know, things aren't going to change. We, we have to make sure that we include the people who are affected by this through those changes. And like I said, if we go into those neighborhoods and we speak to them, they will tell you we want the, the cops, especially, I mean, 521 homicides. I'm telling you right now, there's so many families that are destroyed and relatives. They're going to tell you, of course, we want the police mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. But yes. Can policing always be better, Matt? Absolutely. We can always we can always have better policing. I, I hear all the time from senior citizens, you know, middle-aged people, even younger people. Like, we want the cops out here, especially in West Philly. It is dangerous. We just want good cops. We don't want to get rid of the police. And you're right, like, some of the people, elected officials and not, that say, like, oh, we don't want the cops, they're not necessarily living on 60th Street in West Philadelphia. You know? Uh, they're just not. And they don't have to deal with some of those issues. What about the quality of life stuff? I've always been wondering, like, you know, I've read you know, Bill Bratton's books and, you know, you see in 
okay. whatever different forms. Like, oh, it was the quality of life tur- helped turned around. The quality of life issues helped turned around uh, New York. Now in Philadelphia, right now it's. Well, the guy smoking marijuana, the person urinating, the the people loitering, we're not even going to worry about that stuff anymore. What's your thoughts on that? Well, we have the same thing going on here, right? So you can't do any of the quality of life enforcement. No marijuana in public, no drinking in public, no get, you know, the gambling, forget it, hands off. All of those things where they don't understand that. that even even though the game, gambling goes into turns into shootings, but anyway. Right. That, I was just saying, that dice game, adding alcohol, Turns into an argument, talks about people stealing money, guns come out, people getting shot all over the place. It happens quite often. Mm-hmm. So those are the little things. Like We have jump in the turnstile in the subways. I mean, we're dealing with a, a, a 100% rise in subway crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have, I think, 12 homicides compared to like three or four. So we're, we're seeing, and you know what was funny when they, not funny, but yeah. when, you watch the, when you watch the video that they have from the cameras, all these guys are jumping the turnstile. So... And I always point those things out, and I send it directly to the city council. Turnstile jumping matters, right? Theft of service, that's what the crime is here, matters. And those things need to be enforced. And I think there's, like, a way you can do it. Like, do you give the person a $500 fine? Probably not, but you could, you know, here in Philadelphia, like, we can... It's a ticket, you know. It's one of the things that I yeah, struggle big, with. But you at least can stop the person and investigate them and detain them, and then maybe maybe they have a gun, maybe they have a bundle right. of crack, and then it it can go from there. You know, one of the things. Okay, right. So he's sitting on his own porch. He's drinking his alcohol, smoking his marijuana on his own porch. He's not the guy we're looking for. No. It, it's it, it's the, it's those card games. It's those you know all those things that can start violence. So here's this guy sitting by the all by himself, whatever, just minding his own business. He's not the problem. Right, so That's you might not point. like it. You might not like it in your neighborhood, whatever. Too bad. Here's the other issue that we're dealing with. So New York City is a rental economy, right? I think I've seen statistics show you like 75 percent of people who live in New York City rent. Okay, and that is a major problem because this is the same thing that goes on in the 60s and 70s, where people say my lease is up, crimes up, things are getting out of control, COVID, all these things. I'm out, and they just leave. And I think you're going to see that if you don't see it already. I know. Uh, the, the, the suburbs of Philly are probably the, the the values of their homes have gone up dramatically because people are saying I'm getting out of Philly. And I once s- you lose that tax base, you're in trouble. We've had I don't know the exact number, but the uh, a city council member last week or the week before was on TV said 33,000 individuals have left in the last year from Philadelphia. You know, and that's not counting the businesses, the small businesses that are gone. Um, yeah. it, it's just. You got to have safety before you can have everything else. I mean, it, you just have to. It's just well, that's that's how the businesses were brought back to to New York City, where we started off taking back one block at a time, mm-hmm. taking it back from the drug dealers and the and the prostitutes and everybody else, and and then businesses want to invest and people want to do things, and then once businesses come in, then they hire people, then people have some money in their pocket. Some kids who maybe would have partaken in crime now have a job and they don't have to do this. They're going to school. All of those things work, but it all started with enforcement. It all starts with the police and providing that safety and the opportunity for businesses to come in so that they can help this help that neighborhood thrive. And I, I worked in some of the worst precincts that you have in New York City. I was a I was a cop in the four seven precinct in the Bronx, mm. which which was always up there in homicides. I, when I got promoted to sergeant, I got sent to 73 Brownsville, East New York, okay. one square mile precinct where we'd have 80 hom- 88 homicides a year in one square mile. Oh, my God. So 
I, I know what I'm talking about in that respect. I saw it happen. I saw the change. The only thing I didn't do was invest. That's what I should have done. I always tell all, all the country, we should, we should have been buying property in New York City because we saw the change coming. You'd be and millionaires. And we, right, we could have been quadrillionaires, right? But that's how stupid we were. So, I mean, but, but, that's, but that's part and parcel for the course, though. We saw a change, and we did our jobs, and we weren't looking to make a buck on it, but yeah. we could have if we wanted to. Yeah, yeah. But, but we get frustrated, meaning me and the guys and girls that I work with, because blood was spilled on those streets. Cops were murdered. All these things that happened. I mean, you look back on it. To, to do the job that they did and then to basically what we look at it as give it all back give it, back. Give it all away where you shouldn't be having to step over people to get to the train right you shouldn't have to step over we have all these services and then nobody seems to either get people to them so just a quick story we had the guy let the fire in the in in um at the christmas tree uh, the yeah tree. i saw that downtown right right and he was let go immediately after arrest and here's a guy who's been arrested, you know, dozens of times. But here's my point. Why didn't someone step in after he was released and send him to some help, whether it's mental health, whether it's drug use? So we talk about all these resources that we want people to go through. We don't want the police involved. Here's your golden opportunity to get help for this guy, and nobody does it. And I, I throw that question out there because I said, where are you guys? Where is where is the reformist in saying, well, this guy, this should have been some intervention here after this? None. I'm, 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 you know, strictly audio, but I'm nodding my head because you must have listened to my conversations over the last three years here in the 18th. You know, with we, we have a program here called the Group Violence Initiative. They do do a good job. Um, they can only do so much, you know. But, like, I said the same thing. You know, like, once the person's – so I have the cell room here. Once the person's processed and released, where's all the services at? You know? Like – Listen, there's a lot of great organizations and people in the city that want to help. I don't know if we're connecting them to the people as effectively as we could be. And and, and I just have to say this, like, I think it was the police chief in Washington. Some people just don't want help. Some people just want to be out there causing mayhem, and we have to acknowledge it and say, okay, you're going to go here, the State Correctional Institute, right, and we're going to focus on everybody else. I think sometimes, I was just talking to my administrative sergeant, we get too caught up in trying to help the guy or girl with the third gun pinch, the fourth gun pinch, and we forget about everybody else that's a good person, the 95, 96% that needs these actual services to help their help them. They're trying everything yeah. they can, you know? And, and honestly, the other, the other narrative that I you know, always like to dispute, they think that cops are heartless, right? How many times have you gone out of your way that, that nobody would have even known that it was, it was like you did something? Because none of that ever makes the news. Yeah. So what you're yeah so what you're dealing with here is an opportunity for people to be able to do something and they they're not there for it. So my question to them is here's gold. So we have everything like we have central booking so everybody goes to a central location. So it's not like they have to go to 77 precincts and be you know be spread out throughout the whole city. They go to Bronx, Central Booking, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island, you, you name it, Brooklyn. So they have a they have a central location where all these people are that need help. And listen, I'm all for second chances, mm-hmm. right? We all who who hasn't gotten a second chance in life at something? It's the seventh chance that I'm not. But it's, well, I was gonna say it's the thirty fifth <laughs> chance, like this guy that fires the Christmas trees. You know, at a certain point, you have to say this person is needs some serious intervention, probably mental health. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but generally, that's the where that's where it leans towards. You know, we have a guy here that. Like I said, the East End, I keep telling about, 
He's a serial car thief. I mean, that's that's what he does. He he wait. He is homeless. He refuses to go to a shelter. Uh, there's probably some mental health issues, and his job is to wake up and break into cars and steal everything and anything. <laughs> that like that's yeah. and he he's actually not a bad guy. We talk to him, but like it's it's the cat and mouse game. Like once a week, we'll catch him and arrest him. Three hours later, he's out. And it just never stops. And the neighbors are, like, so frustrated. And it's the same people that, like, want police reform and want us to not respond to mental health calls. They're also like, well, why do you let this guy out all the time? And we're like, we're not yeah, letting him we out. Don't, that's, yeah, that's not our job. <laughs> yeah, we're not. Our job is to arrest the person and give him the – go figure, uh, you know, to the DA and everybody else. Exactly. I, I, I want to hit on this. This just popped in my head. Like, I hear a lot down here um, in Philly – access to guns we have to change the gun laws on the state level and then i hear the counter argument is well we're not enforcing the laws that we have you know yeah. our new york's gun law our new york's it's two parts so i'm not that familiar with new york's gun laws one are they strict and two i guess essentially am i asking are they not being necessarily like enforced once the arrest is made if that makes sense uh, uh, yeah our gun laws in new york city are very strict as a matter of fact, I mean, the only people who get guns are the ones that are illegal. Mm. So they're denying permits at a, at, a, um, at, a, at a high rate. I know that. Um, the issue that comes down to is, like for New York City, you can't even carry a shotgun through New York City unless you're going to be out within 72 hours. So if you're going hunting upstate and you're coming from Long Island, you have to drive through the city. You better be out within 72 hours. If not, you're committing a crime. Wow. So, wow. yeah, so, I mean, there's, because, you know, Long Island is different than Westchester and all upstate. I mean, those gun laws are, are different. But okay. New York City's gun laws, are very strict. Uh, you know, I, I am the, I am firmly in the camp of let's enforce the rule, the laws that we have. We don't need new ones, right? So New York City had a mandatory three years in prison if convicted with a gun charge. I want a list of those people who have spent that three years. Before that, there was only one guy, I think, that spent over two years, and that was Plaxico Burris. Remember? The, yeah, the, the football player, the football player. Right, the football player. <laughs> yeah. right, I think he spent like two years or a year and a half in prison. But give me a list of people who have spent that three years mandatory in prison. I said, you won't find it because you don't even get bail. You know, I've asked um, our counterparts to the first offense with a gun. I'm even let it slide unless it's something else egregious with it. But that second and third, like, just come out publicly and say, listen, I'm, I'm putting you in state prison. You know, two individuals, I, I want the listeners to hear this, I want you to hear this, and you, you probably have experienced this multiple times. There's two guy, two individuals that were involved in, like, gang group violence out here. I mean, from the day I got to the 18th district, these guys were on, on social media. Like, everybody knew these were the problem childs. And both of them had three gun gun arrests within 12, 13 months. So one individual's locked up three times. The other guy's locked up three times. Um, they're friends. They terrorized this one particular area, violence, the whole nine yards. They finally go to court for their gun cases, and they take a plea deal from the district attorney's office. And, and to their credit, they consulted me. They said, listen, we're going to offer these guys two and a half to five years. They they pled guilty knowing that that's what they could get. They went in front of the judge, and the, ju- the judge said, time served, have a great day. The amount of emails and paperwork and phone calls and Zoom calls over these two guys, and I hate to say it, like, the odds of them being involved in or victims of gun violence are just really high. It is what it is. Well, it, it's just just like a, a note. Like we used to have to fill out these shooting reports. So when I was a 
you have mentioned before, so I was the XO of the 110 squad. So I, I was responsible for basically all the other investigations. We had a RAM sergeant that covered all the robberies and stuff like that. So I was involved. I was responsible for everything else. And we used to cover other precincts. So we used to have catching days. Mm -hmm. So I would have like six or seven precincts I'd have to cover. So basically I wasn't going home because something's going to happen. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, you, you would deal with these situations and you just like, you would shake your head because it's like the same people over and over again. He's like, what are we doing with this guy? How is this, you know, why are we do, dealing with this guy again? You know, the, the ink isn't even dry on the paperwork yet and he's out there creating mayhem. You know, I, I, I think that I'll kind of wrap this up on this 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 topic. I, I think at least here in the city of Philadelphia, people are starting to like see it and speak about it a little bit more. Um, you know, and, and I'll leave it at that. You know, uh, we do have a lot of help with our federal partners in our state attorney general's office, but we you have to put these guys and girls in jail that are repeat yep. gun offenders. I mean, you just have to. You, and I think everybody acknowledges that. Um, real quick, like if we could just touch on how does a detective sergeant in NYPD go to be an adjunct professor at John Jay College? You know, and I say that because I taught my first class at Temple University this year, which I want to say was harder than actually being the captain of a district. So, <laughs> yeah, no, listen, I mean, it comes with its own sets of rules and regulations and um, and and problems and issues, right? So, I uh, decided to go back for my master's degree, uh, going back with a few years left, because as as you as you know, as well, you approach your mandatory retirement or your pension retirement, however you want to look at it, you say. You know what else? What else, what do I want to be when I grow up? Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, do, what do I want to do? So I always liked teaching. I always uh, enjoyed the idea of it. So I went back to school, and we had a great. Uh, we had the police foundation funded a program for the police police department, where basically wow. they would pay for your yeah. So they would pay for your first, basically one third of your master's degree. Okay. So you know, yeah, cops were extremely cheap, right? So if anybody's going to give me a third something for free, we take it, right? If it's free, it's for me. So I decided to go back to school, and I enjoyed it so much. And what happened was, I really started, you know, making inroads about you know going back to school and doing it. But yeah. I, I met a lot of nice people in the organization itself at John Jay, who for some reason grew attached to me. They liked me, so they said. You know, when you finish your program, you know, so I went back, I went right into the, the finish the master's program. I finished it in two years. I went to school during weekends and uh, winter classes and summer classes to get it done. I finished it up in two years. And, you know, a couple of people, you know, powers that be saw that Solid. I made this great effort. And they said, you know, hey, would you like to be an adjunct someday? And I said, sure. So I put my name on the list, thinking, you know, whatever. So what happened was about a week later, that same individual calls me up and says, we just had an adjunct drop out. Could you teach tomorrow? You know, basically one of those things. So it was like wow. right place at the right time. Right, cool. So I juggled, I juggled that while I was running a squat. So really? it was, yeah, it was difficult. I mean, I wish we had the online capability like we do today. Yeah. You know, back then, but in person. So I used to go to work, work my overtime. I would go to school. I wouldn't get out till 11 o'clock. I used to do late classes sometimes. And then. They have to be up at four o'clock in the morning. They'd be back at work at six. So I used to do like you know, if I did that today, you'd have to get me out of the hospital. Yeah, no. Listen, right. I, I I know the feeling. I mean, I um, I actually met somebody would come to our community type stuff. That was a professor at Temple. Asked if I'd be interested. Similar thing. Put my name on the list. And the day before I went on vacation, they called and said, "Hey, can you start in two days?" Had no idea what I was doing, but it was very, um, you know, we did it online. I struggled with technology, but I'm a Zoom expert now. And um, 
you know, it, yeah. it, it's pretty cool. So, you know, and uh, listen, I have one last question for you. I have one last sure. question. I need an honest answer. Is the end, is the New York City detectives the best detectives in the world? Because I, I am biased yes. a little bit. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Unequivocally. I mean, but you know what? It's, just, it's the sheer un- unfortunate experience that they have. So I dealt, I, listen, when I was in charge of the cold case squad, I had two 30-year detectives with me, both first graders. That God forbid anything happened to you, these were the guys that you would want yeah. to investigate. I mean, these guys would just be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat, you know, and do all these. And yeah. one guy, unfortunately, has passed away since, Mark Tevins. But they were writing books about him going back to his days when he was a detective uh, in in uh, Washington Heights when he took down with the group of the Dominican drug gangs called the Wild Cowboys. You can read the book of Wild Cowboys. It's okay. about Mark. Really? And uh, this guy was, yeah, and he was huge. So what happens is, Tony and Mark were these like six foot four guys, huge, and me and the other guy, Steve, were short, you know, not that big guys. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because we'd go into talk to people and say, hey, listen, you either talk to us and then point to over. So, so you're talking talk to these to guys. Them. Yeah, yeah, I got you. <laughs> and they like look around, you go, all right, we'll talk to you guys. <laughs> you know? Well, listen, I, um, I definitely, I definitely appreciate this. I definitely can see how the, you know, the New York City detectives are 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 very high on the list. I, I want to say that maybe you can come down and visit Philadelphia Police Detectives and Southwest Detectives one time. We'd love to have you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you know, take any advice you can give us. But listen, John, I really appreciate it. Joe Jackalone. Um, John Jay College, now political science and criminal justice department adjunct professor. You know. Yep. Um, did the 20 years go quick? That's another thing I wanted to ask you. Yeah, they did, you know. I, right. I've been out um, eight years now, so it's amazing. You know, okay. I've been out eight years, so I had a great time. I, I can tell people I don't miss the circus, just the clowns. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can relate. So coming up on my 20th year, you know, um, so uh, I'm making some decisions of where my future goes, and you know, but I'm definitely dedicated to the city, Joe. I really appreciate it. We have to do it again, and uh, you know what I mean. The connection on Twitter, you know, now power social media. So thank you very much. Yep. Thanks, Matt, for having me. All right. <laughs>